welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar here at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you the first part of a lecture given by Far Curlin, MD, for a Trinity Graduate School Colloquium in February 2008. Dr. Curlin is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago Medical Center. The lecture is entitled, Getting Below the Surface, The Ethics of Religious-Spiritual Interaction in the Clinical Encounter. Two domains of clinical medicine are attended by enduring controversies. At the beginning of life, controversies surround sexual and reproductive health care, from abortion to contraception, prenatal genetic screening to normative judgments about sexual identity and practice. At the end of life, controversies surround a range of practices that go under the name of of end-of-life care, from withdrawal of life support to terminal sedation to physician-assisted suicide, from brain death to judgments about human dignity and quality of life. And into these controversies steps the field of medical ethics, a domain of activity that at least ostensibly, pursues knowledge of good medical practice and good use of medical technology so that clinicians and others involved in healthcare healthcare can practice according to right reason. Yet the nature of medical ethicist's task raises basic questions. Namely, according to what criteria shall the goodness or not goodness of a particular practice be judged? If the criteria for such judgments are themselves the subject of dispute, How shall disagreements be resolved? And when disagreements cannot be resolved, despite our best efforts, how shall clinicians and the profession of medicine proceed? These days, such questions are raised in more or less explicit terms under the auspices of an ongoing debate about the place of the clinician's conscience in the practice of medicine, and in a related fashion, a debate about the influence of clinicians' religious commitments on their clinical practices. As you might guess, these are issues of both personal and professional interest to me, and I'd like to explore them with you in a bit more detail in this hour. First, I'll describe findings from our empirical research regarding U.S. physicians' opinions about withdrawal of life support, terminal sedation, that that term I will define in a moment, and physician-assisted suicide, and regarding how those opinions are associated with physicians' own religious characteristics. Then I'll present findings from the same study regarding what physicians think they ought to do when patients request interventions to which the physicians have religious or other moral objections. Then with these empirical findings as a backdrop, I will consider the place of the physician's conscience in the practice of medicine. And I'm going to argue that conscientious practice, when marked by candor and respect, is our one best hope for achieving good, or ethical or morally praiseworthy care of patients who are dying, even and perhaps especially when clinicians cannot agree on what good practice requires. So let me tell you about the survey. In the United States, physicians remain the de facto arbiters for most aspects of medical care, including end-of-life interventions. While all 50 states allow patients to refuse medical treatments, patients often lack decisional capacity in the final stages of their illness. And even when surrogate decision makers have been appointed, physicians sometimes make critical decisions regarding care without consulting the patient or the patient's family. Many people fear that should they fall gravely ill, their physician may not follow their wishes. 
For some patients, this could mean not having access to physician-assisted suicide or terminal sedation. For others, it could mean overzealous physicians refusing to withdraw life support in the face of imminent death, or conversely, implementing unwanted life-shortening interventions. While healthcare policies strive to protect patient preferences, physicians continue to influence end-of-life decisions in a decisive way. Patients and physicians may disagree about end-of-life care because they have differing interpretations of what a good death entails. The term good death has obviously had a lot of currency in the last 10 or 15 years. In a study of the views of patients, clinicians, and other healthcare workers who had experience caring for the dying, Steinhauser and colleagues at Duke University noted that, quote, pain and symptom management, clear decision-making, preparation for death, completion, contributing to others, and affirmation of the whole person, end quote, were all components of a, what they called a good death. They also noted that each component has biomedical, psychological, social, and spiritual aspects, and that these aspects are given different emphases by different groups. Disagreements about what a good death entails have often become visible in light of controversies about physician-assisted suicide, terminal sedation, and in an earlier era, about withdrawal of life support. Where previous studies have found that physicians' opinions are associated with their religious characteristics, in our own research, we found that nine out of 10 U.S. physicians endorse uh, some, some religious affiliation, and more than half say their religious beliefs influence their practice of medicine. Moreover, studies have consistently found that physician religiosity is associated with physicians' approaches to a variety of ethically controversial medical practices. It's therefore not surprising that debates about physician-assisted suicide, terminal sedation, and withdrawal of life support have often centered on the ways that religion influences patient care and public policy. Now, different faiths have different teachings uh, with respect to end-of-life care. Roman Catholicism, for example, prohibits suicide but permits the withdrawal of what are called extraordinary measures, even if death is anticipated but not intended to result. Some Eastern religions, such as Buddhism and Hinduism, emphasize the karmic nature of pain and the importance of enduring suffering. For that reason, use of artificial sustenance, life support, and extensive sedation are sometimes discouraged as unnatural and possibly damaging to a peaceful death and a desirable reincarnation. Some traditions in Judaism emphasize an obligation to sustain life above all else, even at great cost and in the context of suffering. In a pluralist society like that of the United States, religious traditions may inform physicians' approaches to end-of-life care in a variety of ways. Now, although prior studies had shown that physicians' religious beliefs influence patient care at the end of life, most of those studies are now somewhat dated and have largely been limited, uh, limited by oversimplified religious measures. So the study I'll describe to you was intended to update and extend earlier research by surveying a national sample of physicians from all specialties to estimate the proportion of U.S. physicians who object to each of these three practices. And to clarify the association between such objections and physicians' religious characteristics. We hypothesized that physicians with higher religiosity would be more likely to object to each of the procedures. We also hypothesized that compared with Jewish and Christian physicians, Hindus and those from other religious traditions would be more likely to object to terminal sedation and withdrawal of life support. 
I'm going to sort of skip through the methods of the study, uh, except to say that we surveyed 2,000 docs, among whom 1,800 and some odd were eligible, and 1,144 responded. And on the questionnaire, physicians are asked to indicate whether they objected to physician-assisted suicide, sedation to unconsciousness in dying patients, and withdrawal of life support, and to indicate whether their objections were for religious reasons, reasons unrelated to religion, or both. Responses to these items were the criterion measures for this analysis. So the main predictors we looked at were measures of physicians' religious characteristics. Physicians' religious affiliations were categorized as none, which included those who identified themselves as atheist, agnostic, or having no religion, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, or other. Intrinsic religiosity, the extent to which an individual embraces her religion as the master motive which guides and gives meaning to her life, was measured as agreement or disagreement with two statements. The first is, I try hard to carry my religious beliefs over into all my other dealings in life. And the second is, my whole approach to life is based on my religion. Now, intrinsic religiosity was categorized as low if physicians disagree with both items, moderate if they agree with one but not the other, and high if they agree with both. We expected that physicians' experiences with dying patients would influence their attitudes toward end-of-life care. So, for example, I would expect that uh, John, as a, as a doctor who's uh, also a geriatrician who's taking care of, uh, I'm sure, scores of people who have died, would, would have a different uh, attitude toward uh, end-of-life care perhaps than, a, than um, a person who's in a specialty that does not involve that, that care for people who are dying. We therefore asked physicians to estimate how many patients they had cared for in the previous 12 months who had died. Responses were collapsed into three categories, none, one to 10, or more than 10. Finally, we examined region of practice as a predictor because we expected that public policy referenda in some Western states, uh, specifically uh, Oregon where the referenda passed and California and Washington where the, they did not, um, that those referenda would have influenced physicians' opinions about this subject. And in multivariate analyses, age and gender were also included as controls. For those of you who work with statistics, our, our analysis was very straightforward. Um, so what did we find? Let me show you. Overall, 69% of physicians object to physician-assisted suicide, 18% object to terminal sedation, and 5% object to withdrawal of life support. Of the 69% of physicians who objected to one or more of these measures, most of these objected at least partially for religious reasons. In analyses controlling for other covariates, we found that compared with physicians from the South, those from the Midwest are modestly more likely to object to physician-assisted suicide, an odds ratio of 1.5, and only one of more than 200 respondents, one of more than 200 respondents from the West had any objection to withdrawal of life support, as compared to 5 to 10% of physicians from other regions. Compared with physicians who cared for no patients who died in the prior year, those who cared for more than 10 were modestly more likely to object to physician-assisted suicide, with an odds ratio of 1.7. And they were modestly less likely to object to withdrawal of life support, with an odds ratio of 0.3. Physicians' religious characteristics were strongly associated with objections to physician-assisted suicide and terminal sedation, as you can see here. So compared with physicians with low intrinsic religiosity, those with high have 4.2 times the odds of objecting to physician-assisted suicide and 2.6 times the odds of objecting to terminal sedation. 
Those who agree that their religious beliefs influence their practice of medicine have 2.7 times the odds of objecting to physician-assisted suicide, 1.8 times the odds of objecting to terminal sedation, and two times the odds of objecting to withdrawal of life support. Compared with Protestants, Jews and those with no religious affiliation are less likely to object to physician-assisted suicide and terminal sedation. Hindu physicians have 3.7 times the odds of objecting to terminal sedation, and Catholics have 2.8 times the odds of objecting to withdrawal of life support. So physicians' perspectives on end-of-life uh, appear to be linked to geographic region, experience caring for the dying, and religious characteristics. Physician-assisted suicide, still illegal in 49 states, naturally remains the most contested of the end-of-life measures that we examine. But withdrawal of life support and terminal sedation are also somewhat controversial, at least for some minority of, of physicians. Physicians usually understand their objections to these measures to be partly religious in nature, which confirms some earlier findings. The finding that frequent exposure to dying patients affects physicians' outlook on end-of-life care is consistent with previous findings. Uh, physicians who cared for more patients with critical life-threatening illnesses or more patients who died were more open to withdrawal of life support yet they're more likely to oppose physician-assisted suicide. Why would that be? It may be that physicians who care for the dying are more likely to interpret patients' requests for physician-assisted suicide as cries for help um, that can and should be answered with pain and symptom management, hospice care, or counseling to help patients deal with anxiety, uh, depression, and other concerns, or actually spiritual care and attention uh, to deal with uh, despair, um, and hopelessness. With respect to regional differences, the general social conservatism of Midwesterners may explain, may explain why they are most likely to object to physician-assisted suicide, although that's just a speculation. Physicians from the West may have been least likely to object to withdrawal of life support because of the highly publicized political referenda there regarding physician-assisted suicide. So my hypothesis is that, is that for physicians who object to, who object to physician-assisted suicide, Withdrawal of life support may seem particularly acceptable and preferable in places where physician-assisted physician suicide is already or seems likely to become a legal option. That Catholic physicians are more likely to uh, object to withdrawal of life support than Protestants may reflect Catholic doctrines prohibiting actions intended to shorten life. Another possibility as suggested during the recent Terry Schiavo controversy, with which uh, I imagine some of you are familiar, and later clarified by a document from the Vatican, there is ongoing debate among Catholics about whether interventions such as parenteral nutrition, um, tube feeding, and the like, and or hydration should be considered artificial life support at all. Now we can talk more about the Catholic Church's statements uh, regarding this issue later if you guys are interested in that topic. Um, the low likelihood that Jewish physicians will object to withdrawal of life support, terminal sedation, or physician-assisted suicide is consistent with other studies. Jewish religious traditions distinguish actions that hasten death from those that remove impediments to death, permitting the latter but condemning the former. And the apparent discord we find between Jewish affiliation and practice in this area may stem from the fact that Jewish physicians tend to be less religious than physicians from other religious affiliations. Less likely to believe in God, attend religious services, uh, self-consciously identify themselves as religious, uh, and whatnot. 
Finally, the observation that Hindu physicians are more likely to object to terminal sedation may be rooted in, in those Hindu writings which have discouraged measures that unduly sedate or impair mental clarity at the time of death, but concern that individuals have sufficient opportunity to expunge karma in pre preparation for the next life. Terminal sedation, uh, the term terminal sedation has been uh, variously defined, which is a limitation in this study. Um, we, we use the term in this manuscript as shorthand for what was on the survey, which was sedation to unconsciousness in dying patients. But we did not distinguish between sedating with the intent of controlling otherwise refractory symptoms and the sedating with the intent of making a person unconscious in order to remove the psychological and spiritual distress that often accompanies consciousness of imminent death. So it can be interpreted either as uh, sedating someone with the intent of making them unconscious as they die. Uh, some people have called it a form of sort of slow euthanasia, mostly people critical of it. Uh, but it, for some people, the term refers to the, the intensive sedation required by really refractory symptoms that is geared, however, toward the, uh, the control of those symptoms, not toward making someone unconscious per se. I think there's a really critical moral distinction between the two. And that the survey didn't tease that apart. We don't know what proportion of the people were interpreting it in one way versus the other. And the more, probably the most important methodological question is uh, whether some people of certain characteristics tend to interpret it one way versus people of the other. That would confound some of our findings. So, for example, if we found that, you know, we found that people who are Hindu are more likely to object to terminal sedation. Well, maybe they are. Maybe they are consistently interpreting it as the intent to make someone unconscious, whereas people who are not Hindu are less likely to interpret that way. We don't know the answer to that question. As another uh, limitation, we recognize that the measures of religious affiliation used here, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, etc., do not capture important theological differences that exist between subcategories of these traditions, for example, evangelical versus mainline Protestants or Orthodox versus Reformed Jews. Finally, this study cannot tell whether or how physicians' judgments translate into their actual practices, since individuals may always choose, however reluctantly, to participate in acts to which they object. So this has just given you a kind of a, uh, a sense of uh, how many people have uh, objections to the practice um, by, on their own terms and how the, the whether they object or not relates to some other characteristics of those. It doesn't give us a very precise measure of what they're going to do in the given case. Now, let's suppose that a physician, after considered judgment, objects on moral grounds to one of these practices. What then should happen if a patient or a patient's family requests that intervention? We know that at times patients do in fact request medical procedures that are legal, but which their physician cannot in good conscience provide. Such situations raise questions about the balance of rights and obligations within the doctor-patient relationship, and in the wake of recent controversies over emergency contraception, editorials and leading clinical journals have argued that physicians may deny legally and medically that, that physicians may not deny legally and medically permitted medical interventions if their objections to such interventions are for personal and/or religious reasons. Altacharo for example, at the University of Wisconsin, has argued that conflicts about conscience clauses represent the latest struggle with regard to religion in America, and she criticizes those medical professionals who would, quote, claim an unfettered right 
to personal autonomy while holding monopolistic control over a public good, end quote. That's from the New England Journal. From the British Medical Journal, Julian Savulescu takes an even stronger stance, arguing that, quote, a doctor's conscience has little place in the delivery of modern medical care, end quote, and that, quote, if people are not prepared to offer legally permitted, efficient, and beneficial care to a patient because it conflicts with their values, they should not be doctors, end quote. In the same study I just described, we put this question directly to physicians themselves. We asked, if a patient requests a legal medical procedure, but the patient's physician objects to the procedure for religious or moral reasons, A, would it be ethical for the physician to plainly describe to the patient why he or she objects to the requested procedure? B, does the physician have an obligation to present all possible options to the patient, including information about obtaining the requested procedure? And C, does the physician have an obligation to refer the patient to someone who does not object to the requested procedure? Response categories were yes, no, and undecided. Again, we look to see how physicians' responses vary in association with their religious characteristics, and in this case, with whether they report objections to terminal sedation, abortion for failed contraception, and prescription of birth control to adolescents without their parents' consent. Here's what we found. With respect to controversial practices, 17% of respondents objected to terminal sedation, 52% objected to abortion for failed contraception, and 42% objected to prescription of birth control to adolescents without parental approval. Now the primary findings. When a patient requests a legal medical procedure to which his doctor objects for religious or other moral reasons, 63% of physicians believe that it is ethically permissible for the doctor to plainly describe his or her objection to the patient. 86% believe that the doctor is obligated to present all options, including information about obtaining the requested procedure. And 71% believe that the doctor is obligated to refer the patient to someone who does not object to the requested procedure. As seen here, Physicians who attend religious services more frequently are more likely to believe that doctors may describe their objections to patients, and they are less likely either to believe that physicians must present all options or to believe that physicians must refer. Compared to those with no religious affiliation, Catholics and Protestants are more likely to report that physicians may describe their objections and less likely to report that physicians are obligated to refer. Physicians who, who personally object to any of the three controversial medical practices are also more likely to report that doctors may describe their objections to patients and less likely to report that doctors must present all options or refer. And after controlling for religious characteristics, the variables region, ethnicity, working in an academic medical center, practicing in a religiously oriented health center, were not significantly associated with any of the criterion uh, measures. However, compared to women, men were more likely to report that physicians may describe their objections with an odds ratio of 1.8, and they were less likely to report that physicians are obligated to present all options or refer patients to an accommodating provider with an odds ratios in both cases of 0.5. So about half as likely. Now, in summary, most U.S. physicians believe that when a patient requests a legal medical intervention to which the physician objects for religious or moral reasons, it's ethically permissible for the physician to describe plainly the reason for his or her objection, but the physician must also disclose information about how to obtain the intervention 
and, and must refer the patient to someone who will provide it. However, substantial minorities of physicians disagree with or are undecided about these majority opinions, and our findings suggest that when patients do request morally controversial clinical interventions, male physicians and those who are religious will be more likely to express personal objections to those practices and less likely to disclose information about the interventions or refer patients to more accommodating providers. Female physicians are more supportive of full disclosure and referral, perhaps because many of the more contested issues in medicine, as we said at the beginning, are disproportionately involve the sexual and reproductive health care of women. Religious physicians are less likely to endorse full disclosure and referral, perhaps because, as our study and many others have found, religious physicians are more likely to have personal objections to many controversial medical interventions. This suggests that those most likely to be asked to act against their consciences are the ones most likely to say they should not have to do so. That was the first part of a lecture entitled Getting Below the Surface, the Ethics of Religious Spiritual Interaction in the Clinical Encounter by Far Curlin, MD. Dr. Curlin is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago Medical Center. This lecture was originally delivered as a colloquium for Trinity Graduate School in February 2008. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center, and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.